again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. My name is Jeffrey Kwame, your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to cultivate and maintain the highest standards of professional practice within the recovery industry. This podcast is in furtherance of that mission, and on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope is of Practice. The research is clear. The use of yoga and mindfulness-based interventions not only positively affect recovery from substance use disorders, but they're specifically helpful in preventing relapse. In short, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration supports their use as evidence-based practices. Both yoga and mindfulness aim to quiet the mind in order to cultivate a deeper connection to an understanding of the self. Both teach you to tune into your breath, pay attention to bodily sensations, and learn to accept reality as it is in that moment. The research findings indicate that SUDs are driven by the dysregulation of neural processes underlying reward learning and executive functioning in the brain. The emerging evidence suggests that yoga and mindfulness-based interventions can target these neurocognitive mechanisms to produce significant therapeutic effects on SUD recovery and prevent relapse. Joining us today are two professionals who use many of these interventions in their practice, Jennifer Valva from Hartford, Connecticut, and Lane Kennedy from San Francisco, California. Jennifer is currently the Director of Adult Behavioral Health Services at Intercommunity Healthcare in East Hartford, Connecticut, a primary care, mental health, and substance abuse recovery organization. She is a licensed clinical social worker and alcohol and drug counselor with over 16 years in the field. And Jen has been a registered yoga teacher since 2011 and is also credentialed as an acupuncture detoxification specialist and Reiki practitioner. She serves as a board of, the, of directors of the CCB. Lane is a meditation teacher for the city and county of San Francisco, focusing on mindfulness-based stress reduction, and is also an independent leadership mindfulness and meditation teacher and guide. She served in many roles as a health and wellness coach since 1999 and has contributed to the Huffington Post and has a strong background in working to empower women. Ladies, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks, Jeffrey. It's good to be with you. Uh, just to start off, kind of the use of mindfulness-based interventions in yoga has really increased significantly in the SUD treatment and recovery field over the last few years. What do you attribute this growth to? I've seen yoga and mindfulness being used more and more in the treatment arena since it's becoming more and more popular in our area. So there's lots of people that have started testing out yoga. They've seen free yoga in the park. They've done some yoga online. So as long as it's become more, more mainstream, people have been jumping in and wanting to do mm -hmm. some yoga. They want to check it out. They want to know what it's about. So mm -hmm. it's been more and more popular recently. And I know from my teaching yoga, when I was in the, our residential program, there was people that seemed interested, always wanted to try it. And then when the opportunity came up, they wanted to jump in and try it. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you, Jennifer. It's, it's the more mainstream it becomes, you know, it's like, it used to be like weird, like only hippies do it. Only those weird people do it. Right. So now that it is coming out to be this like mainstream, like, Oh, actually it's scientifically proven to help the brain and help calm us down. People are starting to really jump into it with like a willingness. And I think in treatment, they're like, what can we help? What, what can we do to help other people? Right. What can we help people what can we use? What are other tools? 
So I think that's what's really happened. You know, the popularity has increased, but it's really not a new idea, even in treatment. Um, I remember in the mid-90s working at um, a mental health and addiction clinic in Connecticut that they use mindfulness exercises as part of dialectical behavioral treatment for individuals with borderline personality disorder to do some sort of some self-calming and be able to stay in the moment. Um, and it was kind of... of cutting edge because it wasn't really being done that time, but it's thousands and thousands of year old and simply based on, on a lot mm -hmm. of the Eastern philosophy, which we know has been helpful to our health. Mm -hmm. it, it is been around for thousands of years. Right. And I think actually, um, John Kabat-Zinn, you know, he came out in the 70s and the 80s with this kind of like mindfulness, like we have to treat uh, the brain, we have to treat the mind. And these, these other philosophies, Eastern philosophy, this is part of the world is actually doing it and they're getting relief right, from the constant brain chatter. So he really developed this sense of like, there is a practice that we can create and it's not difficult. Like people tend to overthink it, but in reality, it is the idea of getting present in the moment and anyone can do that, right? With any kind of cognitive, uh, disability, anybody can look at a, like if I'm, I'm holding up a pencil right now and look at this pencil and see that it's pink, right? Unless you're colorblind, right? But it's actually just staying in the moment and looking at the eraser, looking at, uh, your hands, being in the present moment, because what happens is that changes the chemicals and the neural pathways of the brain, changing the ideas, the thoughts of someone who's in treatment. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that the progress of psychotherapy has changed so much over the years. And I think that a lot of people ha originally have an idea that psychotherapy is I'm going to sit in a chair, I'm going to talk to a therapist, and they're going to ask me, you know, how does that make you feel? And mindfulness really isn't anything about that. Mindfulness is encouraging someone to self-soothe and encouraging people to be in the moment. So all of the newer therapies that people are using, the newer interventions are mindfully based. And it has a role in both the smaller circle of treatment and then the larger circle of recovery because we know that most substance use disorder treatment is very acute and it's an early when somebody is really struggling. And mindfulness-based exercises to keep somebody in the moment, in the present, are incredibly mm -hmm. helpful at the beginning mm -hmm. where most changes occur in treatment at the early mm -hmm. part to help them understand and carry that forward. Mm -hmm. um, the terms yoga and mindfulness-based interventions you know, using that, I get it, is a bit naive, but how do we talk about some of the different types of practices? Because under those that large umbrella, there's a million different things. There's definitely so many. And, you know, yoga means so much more than what the average person thinks that it means. There's eight total limbs of yoga. Only one of those limbs is the physical practice. So only one of those limbs teaches us to stand on our head and to do the movements that most people associate with yoga. Yoga is an entirely encompassing spiritual experience. And any of the limbs are available to anybody who wants to explore them. So when we talk mm -hmm. about yoga, it's normally just the physical practice, but there's just so much more to it. And meditation is one of those limbs of yoga. 
Mm-hmm. And when you look at it from the mindfulness based perspective, right, there are so many different uh, ways to be mindful, right? It's looking at your hand, noticing the lines being present in the moment, but then you can also do a body scan, right? You can also uh, pay awareness to your breath, right? So there's different ways to become mindful as well as, you know, in that just little corner of the world. A clinician that I worked with also at that clinic, would we worked together on folks with um, chronic long-term uh, mental health disorders, mostly thought disorders. And when we would do a group, he would always start with a relaxation and mm-hmm. kind of a be in the present exercise. So people who were even floridly psychotic at that moment for a yep. brief period of time could regain a little bit of control of things and, and really be present. It was in- incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the greatest gifts, I think, of becoming mindful in meditation is that it actually can transform somebody in like less than 30 seconds, right? You can actually start to change the, again, I just go back to the the science of it, the chemicals in your brain. And and just a simple act of him saying, focus on the shoes on your feet and how they feel, change everything in the moment for these individuals who are struggling. Yeah. Um, I mean, we talk about like pain reduction, right? There's such an opiate crisis right now and how if practitioners start to turn towards using a more mindful practice, right? Again, changing the chemical cocktail in the brain, that dependency for opioids starts to change because you're changing that desire inside the brain. So it, it's emotionally, it's regulating the brain, right? It's, it's such a powerful practice. And emotional regulation is so very difficult um, for individuals with substance use disorders, especially very early. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that very early and acute time. Um, How do these practices help those that are kind of in the beginning of of recovery or enter a treatment mode, which is very, very stressful for somebody who's already got a lot going on and they're entering treatment with not an expectation of what's going to happen. So how do these exercises and things help those folks? I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of progress with people in very early recovery who are dealing with a lot of post-acute withdrawal syndrome and, and associated symptoms, just really struggling with being with themselves. So a lot of people feel as though they're very dysregulated, their emotions are incredibly intense, or they feel very numb early, early on in recovery. And the practice of yoga or mindfulness or or even a a mindful grounding exercise really supports people in being with their body and it changes their relationship with self. So a lot of our folks struggle with relationship with self and thoughts about shame and guilt and, and all kinds of intense emotions and just sitting in a chair and taking a deep breath in and out and following the breath all the way down to the bottom of the belly and out. That's something most people don't pay attention to. And that's something most people don't focus on. So something as simple as feeling your breath and allowing your breath is huge because most people do not connect with that mind body connection. And that's essential. You know, emotional regulation and kind of, Managing our own thoughts is something that we talk about in treatment and cognitive behavioral treatment. But if we can manage our emotions by managing our thoughts, and I think what you're describing is a very simple way, um, not easy, but simple way to to manage your thoughts by starting on something as basic as a grounding exercise or focusing on paying attention to your breathing. And I think that's often lost um, 
in it that when we start talking about managing thoughts and emotions, the easiest way to do it, the simplest way to do that. It also engages people in the practice of willingness, which is essential in any change process. So if people are willing enough to sit in their chair and take a deep breath in when a group facilitator asks, then they might be willing enough to do some other things that are outside of their comfort zone. So just as simple as being willing to do some gentle chair yoga or being willing to do a meditative practice or a mindfulness practice really starts the ball rolling and starts the neurotransmitters going where they need to go. As somebody who, who's, who's now in my new role looks at the workforce, I really have less of a struggle with a person receiving services, their lack of willingness to try something because everybody's giving them advice and no one believes what they say. I struggle more with the professional who doesn't isn't willing to try or, or mm. in, incorporate different practices into their care of somebody uh, for sake that it doesn't meet their expectation of, of what treatment and recovery are. I, I see the faces. That's just a thought of my own because I deal with the workforce now and, and it's, well, sometimes I, it's much more difficult than the clients. Right. Cause some people have these old ideas, right? They have the old ideas and they're kind of stuck in their ways and they haven't tried mindfulness or yoga. So they don't, they haven't had that, that bodily experience right? They haven't had the sensations, the calmness that, that comes over them. They haven't had that shift of perception that actually happens, again, under five minutes. This can all happen if they allow it. And so I think it's, again, it goes back to kind of educating people. And as this mindfulness and yoga and breath work, all these tools become more mainstream, these professionals will start embracing it because they'll see, oh, wow, it actually does work. And my clients are my, my um, you know, the people who are here are actually getting results. And we understand now we're looking at it as evidence-based practice, but it's always, there's always been some practice-based evidence to show that it's yes. working and helping people. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. So how does it help those in longer term, people who have sustained recovery? What kind of practices help it, those folks? Yeah, I think there's, you know, it, it all goes back to, you know, somebody who needs to calm the body down, right? Calm the thinking down, regulate emotion, have healthier relationships, right? Because we still have the alcoholic thinking. There is still some kind of imbalance happening. And so somebody with longer term recovery is going to benefit with, you know, healthier relationships, you know, uh, greater resiliency, uh, again, I talk about that emotional regulation because that's something that someone in recovery has, has got to balance all the time, right? You're in traffic and you still have to have that emotional regulation, mm -hmm. right? It's, you still have to find those tools, you know, and embrace them instead of like flaring up and, and having a relapse, right? So you have to, it's like any stage of recovery, these tools are going to work if you incorporate them. I, I, I think it gets lost sometimes that at the very beginning, we're talking about people as survivors. They're surviving mm -hmm. and it's a survival mm -hmm. uh, uh, skill. But as they go on, it becomes honest, like you said, for resiliency and that they're both important. But people often will say, well, I use that to get through this. It may not have application here when it absolutely does. A good thing is a good thing. A good thing is a good thing. And it also... 
it, it, I don't want to say that it reduces the loneliness because so many people in recovery have this sense of isolation and loneliness. And especially now in the world that we're living in, right? So when you have this mindfulness practice or a yoga practice, it kind of removes that layer of like isolation and this lonely, um, self-pitying feeling that someone can go into in recovery. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to my thought about the relationship with self. If I like myself, Mm -hmm. I'm going to want to be with myself a little bit more. If I don't like myself, I'm going to do everything I can to not be with myself. Yeah. And it it feeds into the, the larger spirituality needs of recovery. As we, as we look at those people can identify that in any way that works uh, for them, but this is certainly a way to connect to something greater than the immediate self. Um, that sense of peace and calm and, and resilience. I think that that's important and people can share that with each other. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the transformational effects uh, of yoga and mindfulness that you personally have witnessed? These are the kinds of things that really uh, uh, interest me. Like what have you seen in changes in people? I know that that's a very broad based question, but if you can narrow it down to a couple of things. Well, I know that I've seen people that most people would have never thought would try yoga, start yoga, try yoga, really fall in love with the yoga practice and continue that as part of their, um, their own long-term recovery work for, for years. That's been awesome to see. Um, most people think yoga is for a, a certain kind of person or a person who's super flexible or a person who's super athletic. And, and that's not really the case. Once people find yoga, they find normally the the practice of it. And, and that's typically what we talk about is the practice of yoga, not the perfect of yoga. So there's always something to get out of it. There's always something to do. And that really supports people in all of their transformation. But, you know, all kinds of people, um, people who have been convicted of violent crimes, people mm-hmm. who have you know, intense trauma that really struggle with their relationship with their body. I've seen so many transformations for, for those folks and pretty much everyone who starts yoga gets some kind of benefit from it, some kind of transformation. Mm-hmm. I agree with Jennifer. It's, there is some kind of transformation that's going to occur. It's just making it a practice and, and the continuous action of it. But one of the things that I see over and over and over again is pain reduction. It, it kind of blows my mind actually because I see people with chronic pain uh, come off of things, you know, prescribed medicine after they start to incorporate a mindfulness and yoga practice. And it, it it's shocking to me, but I keep seeing it happen. So I know that it's working. It, that's the, that practice-based evidence that you're seeing. What people tell yeah. you is happening is really what matters most. Right. This is my, but, this is my experience of it. It's working for me. Yeah. But there's also science too. I yeah. mean, there's also a huge amount of uh, science evidence based as well. So it, it's, it's incredible to see both, both. I think the fact that it affects the part of the brain that, that really contributes to relapse is mm-hmm. absolutely not just mm-hmm. fascinating, but life-changing and, and, and can ultimately be paradigm changing in this field. Yes, I agree. Jen, you had mentioned to me before about yoga having to be trauma-informed, and you had mentioned trauma just a minute ago. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So yoga needs to be trauma-informed, I think, for everyone. So 
there is a lot of scandal out there between certain, you know, famous yoga instructors and, um, you know, things that they've done that are inappropriate with their students and, and things like that. And I think when you're teaching a class and you're supporting people in having a better relationship with their body, you need to be aware of what those boundaries are and what the comfort level of the student mm-hmm. is, as well as the comfort mm-hmm. level of the teacher. So hands-on assists are a very prevalent part of yoga. Not everyone is okay with that and, and being mm-hmm. aware of you know, who you're teaching and are people okay with hands-on assists? Are people okay with certain terminology? So that needs to be definitely addressed. Um, and as a yoga teacher, I usually ask, I ask people, you know, this is something where I normally give a hands-on assist. If you would like one, please let me know. If not, you know, I won't, I won't come over to you. And that's part of respecting people's relationship with their body. Yeah. It's such a personal experience, right? Like yoga and mindfulness and meditation and breath work and all of it. It's so personal. So if you have somebody all of a sudden putting their hands on you, it's kind of like, (gasps) it can really exactly traumatize somebody. Uh, you know, as with any practice that lies outside of what is considered the norm, um, there's always going to be those who will question or will trivialize the use of these these techniques and uh, interventions. What do you say to those individuals? I ask this for my own personal reason, because <laughs> I want to learn to say something to people when they reject things at work. <laughs> it's simple. Just try it. Right? Like have the experience, find a teacher and try it. A lot of people are like, oh, I can do it on my own. I can do it on my own. But I, I really think that people will get more out of it uh, if they experience it with a teacher. You know, a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm just going to sit here and listen to this chimes, you know, uh, and that's great. They can try it. And then they'll like be like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. It's boring. Well, if you have a teacher that shows you, right, that um, can guide you, can offer you suggestions, you're going to learn about the practice, you're going to grow in the practice, and you're going to experience different depths of the practice. So, you know, try it for 30 days. You're not going to lose anything, right? (laughs) I'm definitely in the the just try it school. I, I think that a lot of people have a different idea about what yoga is. And Mm -hmm. there's all different kinds of yoga classes. There's all different kinds of yoga teachers. There's all different kinds of yoga to practice. Um, But I also think that that speaks to willingness. Why wouldn't you be willing to do something that's been around for thousands of years that's helped so many people? You know, if you're not willing to do it, that's okay, but you're missing out. That's There's really an unconscious answer to that question from the workforce that we don't often talk about. As we look at much of our workforce has a recovery history of their own, anything outside of what they may have done can be perceived as a threat unconsciously, not, you know, there's no intention. And because this would lie outside of what they've done, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that, that, that mindset. And I think that's a challenge and, and exposure and, and, Activity will, will ultimately change that, but we've got to, that willingness has to occur as well. 
Absolutely. That's such a dangerous mindset to have as a helping professional too, to have such a rigid set of this is what works and nothing else. So just Mm -hmm. because something might not work for me as a person doesn't mean it's not going to work for somebody else. I often Mm -hmm. say we don't always decide what heals us. So Mm -hmm. why would we be rigid about anything? To me, it goes back to the the use of meeting people where they're at as a punchline, as opposed to it being an actual practice. This is something that in practice does meet somebody exactly where they're at because it's not the same experience for everybody or so I'm assuming. Absolutely. Everyone's experience is different. Everyone's unique. I think that's what fascinates me about this. Um, Mm -hmm. It really goes into meeting people where they're at. Once somebody has willingness, they can explore whatever they decide to explore um, and see if it's helpful. Yeah. I've seen people go deep down one path, right? Uh, Like Jennifer was talking about, there's so many different types and you know, I had a student go down the yoga path and with the, which is the physical part, right? And she's deep down that path, every type of yoga, and that has become her thing. And she's not drinking or using or anything anymore. It's purely yoga. And then I've seen other people just get into the breath work, right? And it's, it's like, there's so much to explore if they're willing and again, I love this idea of just being willing to like open the next door and open the next door to see what else is available. Um, and without that, people can get stuck and can become complacent and uh, get closer to relapse. There's something that you're saying, you're both saying to me that is striking me when we look at, at professionals in terms of self-care. We talk a lot about self-care as professionals, but we talk about it as it's some sort of adjunct to our professional life, that we have to take time off and do this, and it affects our work, it affects everything. This is really something, these types of techniques, somebody can do between sessions or when they have five minutes to themselves to ground themselves and be ready for the next challenge. Oh, absolutely. I've, uh, when I was teaching yoga in our residential program, I had staff that would want to take yoga right along with the residents. And that was awesome. So it was supporting staff in their self-care, but it was also allowing staff to connect with residents in a much different way than, than they were able to any other way to share energy in a yoga class um, is, Mm. is awesome. Tremendous way to build a therapeutic relationship. Absolutely. You know, I believe in this so much. I'm willing to try it with you. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. And then there's something that they can uh, communicate about, right? They can relate to each other and share that experience. I think that just, it builds that that relationship. Mm -hmm. We we forget people don't want to talk about addiction all the time. People want to talk about recovery and recovery is life. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a, a, a mindfulness practice that they want to talk about, or they want to talk about rebuilding a motorcycle, Right. <laughs> if it's part right. of their recovery process, right. it's all good and builds right. that, that relationship right. and rapport. Right. The um, last thing that needs to be discussed in substance use treatment is don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Everything else needs to be discussed other than that. I think that that's something that is focused on far too much. I have a colleague named Carl Hart who's done a lot of writing that challenges the status quo. And he's brilliant and he's a great uh not really well liked by many of the field because he challenges everything. And some of his things are kind of out of the way that I don't buy. 
But the fact that he makes you think is amazing. And he talks about the message we give to people, to children, to get them to not get into a, a drug use. And we say, if you use drugs, you're going to go to jail or you're going to die. And these kids are seeing people in their lives who are using drugs every day and aren't dying and aren't going to jail. So they already think we're full of garbage and they're not going to believe it instead of just simply telling the truth. Yeah, definitely. Um, as we close, uh, why is it important for individuals in this field to have a working knowledge of these types of activities and interventions? Why is it important that, that professionals have an awareness of that? Most interventions right now do have some part of mindfulness connected to them. And it's important to really understand what mindfulness is and how to implement that as an intervention. But also it's good to have this in your tool bag to be able to support the people that we serve. Have you thought about this? Have you tried yoga? Have you tried mindfulness? Well, let me put on a meditation and let's try it together in session. It's, it's essential because it's a healing modality. Yeah, I think it's about like improving the quality of life, right? As treatment centers, as healing professionals, it's like people, this is a, a tool to improve the quality of life and people in recovery, alcoholics, drug addicts, like, you know, we kind of sway to the doom and gloom. So when we're in a mindfulness practice or a healing practice with yoga, it's again, like what Jennifer was saying, we tend to like ourselves more, <laughs> like we feel better. And I think anybody in the treatment facility world or in recovery, it's like, it's a disservice to not engage with these kind of tools and to show and to share them with others. So we get back to willingness, willingness to learn, willingness to accept mm -hmm. uh, a different point of view or perspective than one's own. Um, and when we talk about being healers, we're also healing and getting more comfortable with ourselves as professionals as we do this and share it with the folks we work with. It's a very safe uh, way to connect without violating boundaries, provided everything is done um, you know, appropriately and with permission and things like that. I think that's this is fabulous. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything that either one of you would like to add before we close? We could talk all day, <laughs> but unfortunately we're time limited. I just wanna invite people to try it, right? Like just try it. Certainly yeah, good advice. Yeah, I would definitely agree with the just try it, but also it's it's out there and it's something that's available mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with it. There's in fact almost everything right with it. We can't say that about a lot of things. That so that's true. that's that's exciting. Well, I really appreciate both of you spending the time with us. Uh, and, and to me, this is enlightening because it, it, it drives me to want to learn more um, because I came into this discussion um, with only the basic research that I had done to be able to speak relatively intelligently. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> um, but it's, it's given me the drive to, to want to learn more. Mm -hmm. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, thanks to both Jennifer and Lane for spending time with us uh, again today to provide helpful information and insight into these ancient practices. And I think it's important that we focus thousands of years. These are ancient, which are growing in our field. 
the CCB also wishes to thank Intercommunity Healthcare for allowing Jen the time to talk to us. We also encourage you to learn more about Lane through her online presence at www.lanekennedy.com. And we appreciate all of you who listen on Podbean, Amazon, iTunes, or your own favorite podcast provider. Until next time, everyone.